Welcome back from the break. Uh, if you haven't had an opportunity yet, I would uh, encourage you to take an opportunity to make sure that you go over and shake hands with uh, or hug the neck of our pastor, Pastor Jim. I know I can speak for you, and you'll join me when we say we love our pastor. Uh, we love Carmen and his wife. We love their family. They give, they share, and they, uh, they live to do God's work. And they came to Savannah to do God's work, and they have tirelessly pressed in, pressed on, and continued. And God has brought increase, and they have gone through some difficulty lately, but God is bringing them out of that. And we look forward to Pastor Jim being in the pulpit or standing on the platform next week because I personally can say I don't think I've ever heard anybody teach the Word of God quite like our pastor does. He has a unique delivery, a unique style, and we long to hear it. Uh, and at the same time, I appreciate the opportunity to share gospel with, uh, with anyone. Uh, I appreciate his, uh, his trust to give me the opportunity. appreciate your willingness to sit and listen. But I tell you what, I, I, I say this for somebody. Maybe there's somebody in the room that's never taken the opportunity to share the gospel or their faith with someone else. I'm just going to try to encourage you to step out. Some of you do it. You do it. You don't even realize you're doing it. Some of you haven't done it. Maybe you think, oh, I'm not wise enough. I don't know enough scripture. I just don't know enough what, how to say. I'm not good with words. Step out. We are, every single one of us who are his, if you are in Christ Jesus, his spirit lives in you. And you are a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ every single place that you go. And you have opportunities around you, whether it's one person, ten people, five people, your family, you know, someone you know, a friend, share what the Lord has done in your life. I'm telling you, it bears fruit. I get passionate about it because I didn't come to Christ because I came to church. I came to Christ because someone I worked with loved Jesus and was willing to live it in front of me and share it with me. Or I wouldn't be here. So I appreciate the opportunity to share this. I get passionate about it because I don't know. I'll just tell you, I don't feel more alive than any other time than when I'm sharing Jesus with somebody. It, it's, it's, it's plugging into a power source that's bigger than me about something that's more important than me, and it's real and it's alive, and I just encourage you. To, to take the opportunity. Let's open a prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We love you. We worship you. We've got a message that's prepared. I pray, Father, that the people that are here and online would be able to follow and, and follow. The, it would be a cohesive thought as it's delivered. But more importantly than that, I pray, Father, that I'd get out of the way and that somebody would hear Jesus speaking to them. Spirit of God, we invite you to speak to us, speak through us, both here today and through the week as we go and we impact the world around us. Help somebody, Lord, come to the faith today. There'd be nothing greater than someone coming to know the Christ today. That someone, Lord, be encouraged in their walk with Christ today. That someone, Lord, be challenged to step up and step out and risk it all for Jesus today. And we just honor you and we get out of the way and we're going to step in and, and let you do what you do because you are the way maker. And you're working even when we don't see it, when we don't feel it. So we just right now surrender the rest of this time to you, both in this place, in Pooler, throughout this city, and throughout this region, everyone who's preaching and teaching the gospel today. I pray that your spirit, Lord, would go forth and accomplish what you're sending it to do through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are stepping into, we stepped last week, uh, Pastor Reuben stepped into uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're continuing that today. Uh, today we're going to do 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to do verses 18 through 31. I want to give you a little bit of information on the front end, then we're going to read that series of scriptures together, then I want to 
come back at the end of that and unpack those and take a little closer look at a few of those. So I hope you can follow along uh, with the direction that I prepared this. But the message, the title I gave this message is Foolishness or Wisdom. And, and, and that's really what it is. We all have to decide, are we going to follow the wisdom of God or are we going to follow the wisdom of the world? Do we see the gospel as foolishness or do we see it as the wisdom of God? And Paul clearly lays that out through this series of scriptures, and I'm excited to share these with you. But uh, let's jump right in. I will give you a little bit of information, and I'm not getting... Okay, you're going to have to advance it from the back. Can you give me the next slide? All right, so the church in Corinth, just a little bit of information. I'm uh, piggybacking on last week as we started this. Uh, it was founded. Uh, you can follow this along in the book of Acts in chapter 18. Uh, this was Paul's missionary journey, a second one. Him and Silas went back out. They were following the churches throughout the region. Give me the next slide if you would. So he left Antioch, and they moved across uh, Galatia. They went into Asia where Paul wanted to preach. He wasn't allowed to. The Holy Spirit forbade him. Then he had the call to go to Macedonia uh, through a vision in the night. He went over, knew that that's where God had called them to. That's where the whole church of Philippi was founded. We went through that about two weeks ago. Uh, the whole church of Philippi was launched out of that. He left Philippi, had trouble there, had to leave. Back, back up. Thank you. Had to leave there. And when he left there, he went to Thessalonica, if you follow the little red line going south, he goes to Thessalonica, from Thessalonica to Berea. From Berea, he went to Athens. From Athens, he finds his way to the city of Corinth. Next slide. And uh, so Thessalonica, the thing is, is Paul had trouble in Thessalonica. Paul got to Thessalonica. They chased him out of town. So he went to Berea, and he found a group of people that were more uh, willing to search the scriptures to see if the truth was in them. And as he was doing that and bearing fruit for the kingdom, the, the, the people who had created trouble up in Thessalonica followed him to Berea, created trouble there, and chased him out of town. He had to leave Silas behind and Timothy behind, and he fled for Athens, and he's by himself there. When he got to Athens, he was reasoning in the synagogue, as Paul always did, everywhere that he went. <clears throat> he did it every Sabbath. He was persuading both Jews and Greeks. And we find in Acts chapter 18, verse 5, it says that when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, so they caught up with him, now Paul was occupied in the word. He was testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. That was Paul's call. That's our call. But his message wasn't well received. When he was there and he gave this message, as many times in the synagogue it happened, you find here in Acts 18, verse 6, he said, when they opposed him and they reviled him, listen to what Paul says to him. He shook out his garments and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I go to the Gentiles. Uh, that's not how you pack a building. Okay, that's not the kind of message that's going to fill up an auditorium. But it's truth. But see, a minister, whether it's the person on the platform, whether it's the person with reverent before their name, whether it's somebody licensed or unlicensed, or it's the person in the workplace or the family member, we're all ministers of the gospel, but a minister's not called to pack a building. A minister's called to preach the truth as uncomfortable as it may be. So when Paul said that, it was true. And he left there, and he never gave in because a minister can't give in to popular culture. 
A minister has two choices. They can, they can give in to popular culture or they can preach the truth, but they can't do both. And, and you can find it. I'm not dropping any names here. But you, you can take 10 minutes in YouTube or any other platform you want to go to and you'll find a number of churches and ministries that are being built on preaching popular culture rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I'm not going to answer to popular culture. I won't be judged by popular culture. I might be today. I might be in this life. But I'm going to stand before the king one day and answer for what I did preach, what I did teach, what I did support, what I accepted as truth. Because popular culture demands every single one of us bow at the knee and, and, and submit to the narrative of whatever is popular at the time without any question. The problem is popular culture changes. Popular culture changes with time. Popular culture changes with whoever's in control of the conversation. It will be different today than it is five years ago, and it'll be different five years from now. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to stay with the Word of God, and I challenge you to do the same because the Word of God never changes. The Word of God is consistent. It is truth. We're reading Scripture today that was written thousands of years ago, and we're going to quote from Isaiah, and Isaiah was read earlier. It doesn't change. It is a bedrock, a foundation I can build my life on, and I'm trying to do that, and I'm trying to lead my family to do that, and I'm challenging you to do that. So never... Never give in to following the easy road of what is popular culture because it is easier in this life. But it won't stand the test of time. That's why it keeps changing. Next slide. I'm going to just submit my life to the Word of God. Now what I mean by that is every time I read the Word, when I read the Word, and that's the one thing I love about my pastor. My pastor, he has a unique ability to take God's Word and find practical application in today's world unlike anybody quite I've ever seen. But when I read God's Word, what I'm looking for is what did he mean when he said that? And how do I use that in my life? And what is he challenging me to do with it? What does he want to change in me? What does he want me to be involved in? What does he want to transform in my life? And it's a continual process. See, Paul, he suffered greatly. But while Paul suffered greatly, he also bore great fruit for the kingdom of God. When he left that synagogue in the book of Acts, he moved to the house next door. It was owned by a guy named Justice. He, and, and when he was there, he's preaching the gospel. And the leader of the synagogue, Crispus, came to faith in Jesus Christ. His whole family came to faith in Jesus Christ. The Corinthians heard the word of God. Many of them believed. Many of them were baptized and I'm amazed. I've been chewing on this all week, and I hope I can express what I, what I feel inside about this. While Paul is in Corinth preaching the gospel, Jesus appears to him in a vision. That's significant. Uh, in Acts 18, verse 9 and 10, it says that the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Don't be afraid, but go on speaking, and don't be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. That, that's significant that Jesus showed up in a vision to speak this into Paul's life. Why would he need to do that? He wasn't just cheering him on. He wasn't just encouraging him. Paul needed to hear this or the Lord wouldn't have spoke to him. Paul stayed there for another year and a half preaching the gospel. So he had had a short time in Thessalonica, even shorter time in Berea, barely made an impact in Athens at all. In fact, Athens is one place he preached or taught that he didn't, wasn't able to found a church. But he's there in Corinth for a year and a half after Jesus said, 
You're where I want you to be. You're doing what I want you to do. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. But I want to put it in a little bit of context. I want you to get in Paul's sandals, if you will, for just a moment. Because we get this idea, at least I personally did. I came to Christ at 31, and I started reading God's Word, and I thought anybody on the platform had a great big spiritual S on their chest. And I thought these men of God and women of God that I read about in the Word of God were just these super Christian super apostles. He, he's a man. I'm not worshiping Paul, but I have a great deal of respect for Paul. I look forward to the day that I'm going to meet him in heaven and tell him how much he inspired my life. But he's, God used him incredibly, but he was just a man like us. He, he went into an incredibly wicked city. He preached the gospel. Many people believed, but he also faced opposition. So next slide. Again, he had went and had to leave Philippi because of abuse. He got to Thessalonica, had to be chased out of Thessalonica, went down to Berea. The people were sitting down with the Word of God and examining it with him. He's like, okay, something's happening here. People are actually looking in the Word. And the, the people from Thessalonica came down to chase him out. He gets to Athens. When he does get an opportunity to preach, they think it's foolishness. So he gets, makes his way to Corinth. That's this incredibly wicked city. He gets opposition, and he's got to be thinking, here we go again. Wouldn't you? I mean, he's been beaten and bruised and battered and stoned and chased out of every town he's gone to, and he's got to be thinking, wow, here we go again. But Jesus assures him where he's, where he's supposed to be, doing what he's supposed to do, don't be afraid, and just keep preaching the gospel. I wonder if we recognize it. Do we recognize really how much, how much difficulty Paul went through for the preaching of the gospel? He, he, followed, he left everything behind. We went through that when we talked about the church in Philippi and Philippians. He left it all behind, all his credentials, everything he had earned. He said it was all trash and left it behind and followed, followed Christ fearlessly to the death. And everywhere that he preached, he was never compromising, never backing away from the truth, whether, no matter what it cost him. And he was just a man that the Spirit of God was working through. Can't he work through you? Absolutely. Look, we live in a world where we're encountering, I'm not going to tell you something you don't already know, but I want to ask you to just think about it and compare it to what Paul is going through. We encounter difficulty everywhere. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you're walking this life out here in Savannah, Georgia, or in this region, or somewhere in the world, and you're watching online, and we're grateful that you're here as well, you are facing opposition from the world daily. All around us, if you ever use a computer or social media or turn on a television or any other technology or just walk outside, there are images of sinful lifestyles around us all the time trying to compress us in and conform us to it. There are pressures all around us to continually trying to get you to conform and to give in and follow the easy road and to get off the narrow road that leads to life. It wants you to lead the road to destruction. But here's Paul. He's gone to this city. He's found his way there. He's in the middle of a incredibly wicked city. He's founded this new church among these people. And these people in Corinth are now having to come out of sin 
but they're still immersed in the same wicked city they were in before they accepted Christ. Now they're having to learn a new lifestyle, and they're also having to learn that while I'm trying to learn how to live for Christ effectively, I need to learn how to effectively impact this city that I'm living in and doing life because God's got me here for a reason so somebody else can come to Christ. And the people that were living in this city, some of them had a Jewish background. Some of them had religious backgrounds. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the, the Scriptures. Come back, will you? But a lot of them were following pagan traditions. A lot of them didn't have that religious background. They were just following wicked practices. And I want to make sure I under, make this point. I don't know what you think about it when you read these scriptures, but when I think about it, I have to remember the city didn't change. Just because I'm reading this letter to the Corinthians, don't think the whole city had changed. They hadn't. There was this small church that was growing, certainly, but they were living in a wicked city, having to impact it, and the city was just as bad as it was before Paul came there. We want to change our world, but while you're living for Christ, trying to impact your city, the city's still doing what the city was doing before you came to Christ. So don't be discouraged. Don't give up. Paul just kept pressing on. And that's what I hear. Keep pressing on. These Corinthians had to learn to live a new lifestyle in the same place they were living the day before. And many of you are living the same thing. Now, Paul, he wrote to these people afterward. He wrote back at least four letters that we know of. Uh, we believe that 1 Corinthians was not the first letter that he wrote. The, uh, the biblical scholars believe that he actually wrote another letter before that, and we don't have a copy of it. It's referred to in 1 Corinthians. He mentions the previous letter, uh, but we don't have it in the biblical record. And then they also believe that 2 Corinthians was probably actually two different letters that were put together. So there's at least four letters there that he's written to them. So what I'm saying is Paul was invested in these people after he left, and we got 1 and 2 Corinthians. It's him as an apostle, a pastor, someone who loved his sheep, he's writing back to them, and they needed it. There's a great deal of wealth and scriptural knowledge in these Corinthian letters that we're going to gain because he's writing back to them information and things that we can use to, to do what we're doing in this city. But he's dragged in the book of Acts. He's dragged before the Roman proconsul. Give me one more. Galileo, he's down there in, uh, forgive me, Achaia in the southern region that's green down there on the map. So there's a Roman uh, proconsul over that area. He's the political man in the place. They, they finally have enough of Paul. They drag him before him, and they charge him in front of him. Now, I just want to remind you, Paul, I get encouraged by this. <clears throat> Paul was well-spoken. Paul was an educated man. Paul knew how to speak skillfully. He was well-spoken. He could put up a defense and did many times. You find it through the book of Acts. But when he's taken before this man, he doesn't even get an opportunity to open his mouth, much less formulate a sentence or put forth a defense. He doesn't even get to introduce himself. What they charge him with in front of them is what they often charge him with. They said, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And I love this part. If you go and look it up in that chapter, Acts chapter 18, it says, Paul was about to open his mouth. He didn't get to say, to say anything. Before he could even open his mouth, Paul must have been formulating his thoughts what was about to come out of his mouth. And Galio said, I'm, I'm not even going to hear the case. Get out of here. And he runs him out. Paul didn't get a chance to say anything. And then it goes on in Acts 18, verse 18. It says that Paul still stayed in town for a while. It says he remained a good while. 
And many of the towns he got chased out of, but in Corinth, God had a work for him to do. God was not going to let him leave Corinth until he was done, until he had finished the work he had started, and then he would write back to them multiple times to continue the work that he had started there. What I got out of that is when God appoints you to a work, God puts you in a place, whether you're a, a minister, whether you're licensed, whether you're in a workplace, whether you're in a family, whether you're in a city, if you're there and God's put you there, no demon from hell can root you out of town. Don't quit, don't give up, don't walk away. Just keep pressing forward and allow the Lord to continue the work in you that he started because he's got you there for a reason. Then Paul leaves there. He comes to Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. So we kind of make the full circle from that green blob over in the left corner there, Achaia. He makes his way across the, uh, uh, the, the sea over to Asia where he had always wanted to preach. And now he's in Ephesus and he's now founding the church in Ephesus. And that was the study we just concluded a few weeks ago. So we kind of made the full circle where we came from to where we are now. We followed Paul as he made his journey. And I'll go back to last week as Pastor Reuben opened up this study of 1 Corinthians. And what was it that Paul preached to the Corinthians? The main takeaway I got out of that, two things, is he called that church to unity. Because unity is everything. We as the body of Christ have to be unified in our purpose. And our purpose is to make him famous and to share the gospel through the city and to live it well. But he also said one other thing. Remember, they were new believers. They weren't... They hadn't been in the Lord for many, many years, but he called them saints. And by saints, it means that they were not some, they were set apart. They were sanctified. They were committed to the Lord. The day you came to Christ Jesus, the day you opened your heart to believe the gospel, you stepped into the realm of saint, sanctified, set apart for his purpose, and you should spend the rest of your life trying to fulfill the purpose he has and plan he has for you. So let's go through these scriptures. I'm going to read a number of scriptures, challenge you to come along with me, try to stay focused to what not I have to say, but what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to you. So we're going to read from verse 18 of chapter 1 all the way to verse 31. We'll come back and unpack a few of those. So it's a lot of scripture, and it's very wordy, but the message is so powerful. Uh, he said, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... It's the power of God. For it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one that's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish, made, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what was low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him... 
you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. Let's take a quick look and unpack some of that. So let's go back to that very first two scriptures. The word of the cross, it's folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being called or saved, it's the power of God. And then Paul quotes from Isaiah. This very next scripture is from the book of Isaiah. He says, for it is written, and I'll just say this for somebody who may be new to studying the Word of God or you're getting into the Bible, I encourage you to just continue on your journey. And when you see this, for it is written, go find where it was written. It says it was written. He's quoting something in the Old Testament because I'll remind you, what Bible did Paul have? All he had was an Old Testament. He might have had the Hebrew version or he might have had the Greek rendering, the Septuagint, but that's all he had. And he was skillful and he knowledgeable and able to go back and read it. And when he's quoting from it, it's, it's a good thing to go back and see what was being quoted from and why and how does that fit in with the narrative that's being discussed. So he said, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So Paul, I'm going to go step back before he gets to Corinthians. I hope I don't lose anybody here. So I'm stepping back. He's in Corinth. Well, let's back up to this town he was at just before that. It was Athens. It's the one place he went and he preached. He wasn't able to found a church. Uh, but he preached in Athens. And when he preached in Athens, they told him it was foolishness. They, would, they didn't want to hear it. They just discounted it. But he preached at Athens at a place called Mars Hill. And then you find this in Acts chapter 17. And the people there in Athens says that they spent all their time seeking something new to talk about. It reminds me of today. It made me think about today. We have so much technology available to us, you could spend all your time just looking for something new to talk about. So it says in Acts 17, 21, the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And in my mind, I went right to the fact that that's what a lot of us do. But Paul's there. He's street preaching. He's not wasting time. He's walking around in the marketplace. And anybody with a listen, he's talking to them about Jesus and the resurrection of the dead and the crucifixion of Christ. And finally, they bring him up and they give him an opportunity to speak to the entire assembly. But when Paul started to preach this message, there are people who fault him for it. You can read books and listen to people preach it. I'm not here to point my finger at Paul. He's a great man of God. But I will say this. When he got to the point that he spoke of the resurrection of the dead, they went, that's it. That's enough. Don't want to hear anymore. That's foolishness. The crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single most important event that's ever happened in human history. And I would say to you that it's the most important decision you make in your entire life how you respond when someone talks about the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Is it true? Do you build your life on it? There's nothing more important that I can talk about. There's nothing more that I, important I can respond to in faith. And you personally have to make the decision. Nobody can help you. Nobody can get you there. You either look at it and hear about it, read about it, and to you it's either foolishness like the Athenians or it is life-giving hope and a rock that you can build your life on. 
It is the difference between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. Foolishness, truth. Life-giving or a waste of time. Look, Americans, I, I found one study that said Americans spend about an average of 145 minutes a day on social media, and I'm not bashing technology by any means. When I first came to Christ, I thought about it this morning. Michael was up here. He had a paper Bible and he was reading from it. Uh, and when I first came to Christ, that's all there was. There was paper Bibles and, and, and I was so grateful to have it. And I read my word daily and I, I just immersed myself in the word of God. And then over a period of time, we started getting electronic. And then finally, I've got this thing in my pocket that is amazing computer that has an entire biblical library available at my fingertips. And I encourage you to use it. I have learned to read my Bible, and I've gone totally electronic. I've got paper Bibles. They're sitting on a shelf, but I've gone totally electronic, and I'm comfortable with that. You use what's good for you, but there's so many tools available, so much at our resources. I cannot just read my word through my phone. I can get in my car, turn on Bluetooth, and as I'm driving to work, I can listen to the Bible being read to me. I can immerse myself in the Word of God if I desire to, or I can immerse myself in technology and social media, and there's so many of these. I don't even know the names of all of them, and they're not all bad. And, and this morning, I'll just have a shame, shameless plug to my son, Charles, in Atlanta. It's his birthday today. Happy birthday, Charles. And I could say that because he's watching us live through social media. He's available and able to join us in church this morning. He told me several weeks ago he's been watching my pastor preach for several months or weeks at least through YouTube. And he's tuning in from Atlanta, joining us. And I don't know how many other people are out there. When I look at that camera, I realize there's people on the other side, either today or later, that could be listening to this message. And God can use that. So we should use technology. And we as a church do, and we embrace it. But don't let it consume your life. As I'm preparing this message, I've gone and embraced the the, the Apple Watch even. As I'm preparing the message and I'm working on it, my, my watch is blowing up with news articles, trying to distract me, trying to take me into the world of what's going on, what the culture's saying, what's really important. What about what the scriptures say? Are we spending time in God's word? It promises to hold every hope for the future that we need. It is life giving. You can do it through paper. You can do it electronically. You can listen to it through Bluetooth. You can do it so many different ways. And the apps that will bring this to your phone are absolutely free and put a biblical library at your fingertips. I challenge you to spend time in it. If you're not, I challenge you to step into it. Spend some time. But no matter what, when you hear it preached, when you hear it read, when you read it yourself, do we accept it as truth. That's the important answer. Paul, he quotes spiritual truth and he goes all the way back to the book of Isaiah and he says that it was fulfilled through Jesus the Christ. What he's quoting in Isaiah is 29 verse 14 and he only quotes the second half of the verse. I'm going to read the entire thing but what's in yellow is what he quoted back there in 1 Corinthians. He said, Therefore behold I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. The cross, the cross of Jesus Christ has destroyed the wisdom of all time of the wise in the earthly sense. The wisdom of man is completely destroyed and the cross sets 
a completely new agenda. Paul looks at this, and his argument's based in verse 18 to 25 on the fact that the cross of Christ humbles those who think that they're wise. And then verses 26 to 31, he's basically telling us that the call of God is for those that humble themselves. And that's really what I'm trying to get to and what I hear when I read this and what happened in my life when I finally humbled myself before God and cried out and said, yes, I really do need you. Instead of just operating in a life filled with pride, Isaiah and Paul are both presenting the same thing. God wasn't just an angry God in the Old Testament. If you go back to Isaiah, uh, he there as well as Paul's writings in the New Testament, God's both our judge, but he's also our Savior. Paul, he reads the Old Testament because it's all he had, and as he reads the Old Testament, he's reading it with a Bible eye toward the cross. And if you don't read the Old Testament, you should. You know, if you just read the New Testament, great, read the New Testament, but you should read the Old Testament as well. There's a great deal of wealth in there. And as you read the Old Testament, don't just get immersed in the stories and don't just get caught up in the lineages and the names and the details of the, the, the temple being created and the biblical knowledge of what the nation of Israel went through, but keep an eye on the cross because you'll find it all the way from the beginning, weaving its way all the way through because God's always had a plan. He's always had a plan. And back in Isaiah 29, 14, what God is saying through Isaiah is he's bringing judgment on that nation because of their hardness of heart, but he's also saying that he's going to bring relief and he's going to bring hope to those that obey him. Their problem is they had the law of God. They knew the law of God. They even had the prophets of God, not just to read, but sometimes they were present with them, physically there, living this out and proclaiming it, but they were going through the motions of worship, but they really weren't worshiping God. They were just going through the motion. It was empty worship and meaningless God talk, and it was a problem for Israel, and Paul's writing to this Corinthian church back to them because it was becoming a problem for them. Because what they were doing was talking a good game, but their heart really wasn't in it. I mean, I can come to church and not be changed. I, I can read the Word of God and not be changed. I, I can talk it and not be transformed. I've got to be moved by faith. I've got to respond in faith and allow Him to do a work in my life. The fact that we talked about this last week, Pastor Reuben took us here, the fact that they were divided in the Corinthian church and Paul had to open up that letter talking about the fact that they were divided over who their favorite teachers were, that's a reflection of the fact that they saw man's wisdom is more important than God's wisdom because they were fighting about who's, who their favorite teacher was. Oh, you know, he really brings it, man. I like to hear his style. I like what he has to say. Did you hear what they had, he said? Forget about it. Listen to what can be taught and preached by the person you're hearing. Take the biblical truth and get rid of the rest and read the Word of God and let Him speak into your life and transform you and be changed. Look, the cross, it reshaped every aspect of life, even the way that we read Scripture. So again, as you read through the Old Testament, you'll see the plan and the purpose that God had. It stands at the center of time, the cross of Jesus Christ, and transform everything. That's why we can say it's the wisdom of God. The day that you humble yourself before the, the Lord of the universe and accept what he has offered as salvation will change your life completely and transform you forever. 
So in this passage, 1 Corinthians, let's go back to verse 20 and 21. He said, where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Look, God didn't leave us groping in the darkness. He didn't leave us trying to figure it out. He's made it very plain, very clear, and very available to us to know what his plan is. He revealed himself to us, and he made a way for us to know him. And it's such a privilege. So, again, back in Athens, before Paul came to Corinth, he preached a message to them. He had an opportunity. He brought the word to them. He told them about the hope, but they called it foolishness. Here's in Acts chapter 17, verse 30 and 31. It's the last bit of what he had an opportunity to say. He said that the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And to them that was foolishness. They didn't want to hear anymore. They shut him down, shut him off, and he ended up leaving Athens and going to Corinth. But God's revealed himself to the world for all time through the man, the God-man, Jesus, the Christ. God uses and did use the foolishness of the gospel preached to deliver this message of hope. And I want to be clear. It's not preaching foolishness. And I hope that's not what I'm doing today. But it's the foolishness of preaching. The message isn't what's foolish, but the delivery method absolutely is. Look, here's what I mean by that. Some are better than others at this, but look, to be honest and be just completely candid, I'm nothing but a talking head up here. I mean, I prepare the message, I pray over the message, I labor in the Word, and I pull it together, and I've got what I believe the Lord would have me to share, and I come up here and I try to faithfully bring it, but I can't save anyone. I can't talk you into anything. You can't win that person on the street corner because of your great eloquence, eloquence or great ability to speak or argue a point. It's just a talking head. But it's not alone because in that opportunity, while you're giving the opening of your mouth and the sharing of the truth, there's a divine work going on there. We sung about it when we sang Waymaker this morning. You may not feel it. You may. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But in the background, while you're opening your mouth and not ashamed sharing what the Lord's doing in your life, the Spirit of God is doing something absolutely amazing, and He's opening the heart of someone, and they respond in faith and go, I want that that so step out step out and be the minister that God's called you to be well is that enough for some it is and some it's not Paul said for the the Jews they demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men the Jewish people they continually were demanding Jesus give them a sign hey if you're the Messiah show us if you're the Messiah tell us plainly they weren't interested in knowing the truth they were just going through the religious rituals 
Now, there were those who believed absolutely, and we know about them, and they were the church, the early church that grew from there, but there were a lot of religious people that just kept coming and giving lip service, saying, hey, tell us you're the Christ, show us you're the Christ. If you're really the Christ, come down off that cross and we'll worship you. They were just going through the motions. They weren't honestly seeking to know the truth. They were trying to manipulate Christ. They were trying to control him. And I love something about Jesus. You ever notice how Jesus is having a completely different conversation than everybody else? They ask him a question, and he goes off on something else. You're like, wait a minute, did he hear what we asked? He, he would not be manipulated, and he will not be manipulated. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the Lord of the universe. It is up to me to humble myself to him. They came to him in, in Matthew 12, verse 38 to 40. They said, some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Sounds good. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seek for a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be there three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He didn't come to impress. If you're the Messiah, show us. He did. He did it in his ministry. He did it through his miracles. He did it, more importantly, through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. And I ask you this morning, what more is needed? The Greeks, they came to Jesus, and they desired to, to speak to him. They wanted to talk to him. We find this in John 12, verse 20 through 26. Hang with me for just a minute. It's a few scripture here. But it said, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who were from Bethesda and Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Sounds good. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them. And here's one of those. Jesus is having a completely different conversation. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, he will be my servant. Excuse me, and where I am, there will be my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So God's plan has always been, all the way back from the book of Genesis, to restore mankind to relationship with him. And it's absolutely clear from everything I read in the Word of God that you cannot do that by your own effort, your own wisdom, or your own ability. Now we, we're human. We're still human. I'm still living in this flesh suit, working this thing out. And let's be honest, the truth is that we're impressed by people that are powerful, confident, and intelligent. But our Lord didn't come that way. He came in humility and he came surrendered to the plan of God for his life, as difficult as it was. These Greeks, I don't think they were impressed by Jesus, what he had to say, if they even met him at all. I've read it, I reread it, and I don't even know if Jesus met them. Philip told Andrew, Andrew told, you know, they came to Jesus, and then I, I assume that Philip and Andrew, they probably looked at this when I read it, and it, it kind of reads like maybe they read that, and maybe I'm throwing more into it. Forgive me if I am, but it seems like when I read it, Philip and Andrew saw this as, hey, hey, the Greeks are here. They're coming to, they want to see Jesus. So, hey, this is a significant event. This, this is time to address them. 
But here's Jesus. He's talking about planting cycles of wheat, and he's talking about demanding people hate their life and follow him. I, I, I think these guys are probably wondering like they did often, what in the world is he talking about? He's having a completely different conversation, but Jesus knew what he was here for. He knew what he came to do, and he is not looking to impress. He's not looking to fill a building. He's not looking to try to have a greater impact on that group of people. He's moving toward the cross because it's the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of man. It didn't fit their agenda. The world, what's the world celebrate? The world celebrates amassing wealth. The world can give you in a list the richest people in the world. Who's the richest? Who's going to be rich after them? You could probably name the four or five top most rich people in the world. It's all over the news. People talk about it all the time. People are impressed by people of powerful position, whether they were promoted, elected, or whatever way they got there. And people are impressed by people with great talent, people with great ability, and they don't want to take anything away from that. But people are also in, uh, impressed by the greatest thinkers of the day, and there's probably my, names that come to mind, but God's wisdom is completely different. God's wisdom looks at the greatest act of humility the world has ever seen, and it was the Christ crucified and dying a death he didn't deserve. A stumbling block, folly, Nobody before the cross would look at that and see anything good could come out of Jesus' death. We're on the opposite side looking back, and I hope you're like me going, so thank you, Lord. Thank you that you were willing to bear my sin. Thank you that you were willing to go to that cross. Many refused to accept that he even died on the cross. And some that believe he died on the cross that aren't in the faith, they especially don't want to accept the fact that he rose from the dead because that is just too much. They can't accept it. I was once one of these. Because the point is, how do I admit that my sin is so great that I need Jesus to die? It's foolishness to a world that refuses to accept the needed gift that he provides. But I hope I'm talking to a room full of people that accept it for themselves and you're walking it out, and you're looking for a way to apply it to your life, and you're looking for a way to impact the city that you live in. And if you're someone here today or you're watching online and you don't know this Jesus I'm talking about, I, I pray that the Holy Spirit is opening your heart to believe and that you're listening to what he's saying to you because today's the day you can come to him today. He said that those that are called, those that respond in faith, those that accept this gift in humility because I need it, in Revelation 13, 8, it said that their names, your name, if you're a believer in Christ, was written in the Lamb's book of life before the very foundation of the world. I, I ran from him for, until I was an adult. But he knew. He knew one day I'd serve him. He knew one day he'd bring my life to a humble place where I would bow before him and say, I need you. I don't want to live this life any longer without you. And Paul said in verse 26, he said, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful and not many were of noble birth. What I get out of that is what I bring to the table means absolutely nothing other than to be willing and say, Lord, if you can use a man like me, I'm here. And I'll follow you and I'll do what you give me to do because he doesn't need my wisdom. Come back one. 
He doesn't need my wisdom. And he's not searching out important people that can finally get this thing really off the ground. Important people he can work through. But he doesn't have to have them. Because he started this thing with some people that were not of noble character, not of great resources, poor people. And my family line means nothing to him other than the fact that he knit me together in my mother's womb and chose that family for me. And any skill that I've got, if, if I have any at all, he gave them to me. I didn't develop them. All he simply seeks is those that are willing to follow him in faith. He looks for, he searches us out. And, and I just, I'll, I'll tell you, beware. You come to Christ, you get real with Jesus. I mean, you really give it all up to him. You really bow before his throne. You really surrender your life to him. He may change the entire direction of your life, but if he does, it'd be a good thing. It's going to be a challenging thing because he's going to put you in a place most likely as you serve him, he'll humble you. He'll put you in places where you feel very vulnerable and you go, oh, this could really go bad and I could really be embarrassed. But I've learned over the years and I'm still learning even today and I'm learning at this very moment while I stand here that is my weakness, his power is made perfect. And when I get smaller, he becomes greater. And when I'm willing to be vulnerable, I'm willing to be humble and I'm willing to be... Uh, possibly foolish, he gets all the glory and he's the one that people see. We all want something to be proud of. We spend our lives seeking something of significance that we can be proud of and the one thing we really should be proud of is the fact that we were never designed to live our lives without a relationship with the living God. And he wants a relationship with us. He's provided the method to get there. He is calling to us daily and hourly, and if you try to run from him, I tell you, he will chase you down and follow you. He doesn't give up on those that are his, but he wants a relationship, and there's nothing of more significance than that, because sin brought death and separation from God, but from the very beginning when Adam sinned, already even before, he had a plan in place so that he could restore the relationship that was going to be broken. Verse 27 through 29, it says, God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what's low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That scripture speaks to me. Uh, just a little quick story. Hopefully, maybe somebody gets something out of this. When I first came to Christ, uh, it wasn't long. Uh, I had a new Christian. I had only been in the faith maybe a year, year and a half. Me and Brenda started dating. Uh, we were here in the city, and as we moved in our dating relationship to the point that we got married, uh, the Lord opened the door that year. Uh, I don't necessarily think this was the right way to do it, maybe, but it's what the Lord did for us. He op gave us an opportunity to serve in that church to lead a young marriage class. We hadn't even been married a year yet, but we stepped into that role. We loved Jesus and wanted to serve anywhere we could, and we went into this little room and started. I started. I wasn't a teacher. I had never spoken publicly uh, other than once or twice during the time in the military where they were training, but I found myself willing to do it, wanting to do it, and I was in this little room with my wife and this other couple. Before the first session was over, one other couple came in the door. We had increased by 50% the first session. Hallelujah. Here we go. And then it got real. It was painful. It was difficult. It was hard. 
I would go home on Sundays and I would go, Lord, I, I don't know how to quit. I won't quit. I refuse to quit, but I need somebody to step up and say, Jim, you're wasting your time. This isn't going anywhere. We need to replace you with somebody else. And I would have willingly said, praise God. And I would talk to my wife about it, but nobody else. And she would say to me, back up one, will you? She would quote this scripture to me. He chose the foolish things of he chose that somebody knows where I'm going. He chose the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. Well, I tell you, that did not lift me up. That did not. Great job, Jim. You're learning. You're getting better. Keep going. But the point was, I didn't need my pride to be pumped up. What I've been learning, and I'm still learning, is I needed my pride to die. Because the whole point is, no matter where you serve Christ, whether you stand on a platform, play an instrument, sing, greet at the door, lead a small group, or wherever you serve the Lord in whatever capacity he gives you the opportunity, I need to get out of the way and let somebody see Jesus. And I struggle to do that. What I don't need is I don't need anybody impressed with me. What I need is somebody to see Jesus as the hope for their future and accept him as their Lord. And if I'm puffed up with my pride and want people to see me, I'm an obstacle and I'm in the way. I need to step back, get out of the way and allow people to see him. Help me, Lord, to do so. He said in verse 30 and 31, Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We've been talking about the wisdom of God. And I hope that's been communicated. I want to take a quick look at these three words. They're significant. Righteousness, sanctification. Righteousness. Thank you. And redemption. That, that pause meant, hey, go back one. And uh, great pickup there. Uh, so go ahead one. Righteousness. What's this word righteousness mean? It's judicial approval. It's a verdict, like in a courtroom. It refers to what's deemed right by the Lord after his examination. It doesn't matter what I think is right. He's examining my life the situation I'm facing, whatever's going on, whatever it is we're looking at and examining today, and he's the one that examines it and says it's whether it's righteous or not. It's what's approved in his eyes. He's the one that chooses. And I'm so grateful it's not based on my performance because how could God, who is just, how could he forgive our sin? How could he do that? Well, Jesus clearly paid the debt for my sin on the cross. He took my sin, but I get great encouragement from this fact. Once he took my sin, it became the legal basis that God could then accept me through the righteousness of Jesus Christ because he no longer looks at me in my sin. He looks at the righteousness of Jesus who paid for my sin. The debt is paid. It's a legal binding basis that allows him to accept me. Let me show you what I mean in Scripture. I love this passage, 2 Corinthians 5.21. It said, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And if that doesn't make you want to shout, 
I, I don't know what to tell you. That is awesome. He didn't even know sin, and he took mine personally and bore it as if it was his. And by that, a legal debt was paid, and I can be the righteousness of God through him. I don't have to earn it, and I can't. This word sanctification. This word is a little more challenging depending on how you approach it, but sanctification is the process of advancing in holiness. It's used of a believer becoming progressively transformed by the Lord into his likeness. Now, I want to make it clear. I can't, that's not a work I can perform. I, I can't keep a list and check a series of boxes, and it's not based on how much I pray, how much I read the Word, how much I go to church, how much I serve. It is a work He's doing in me and through me. What, what comes to mind, I hope maybe somebody will get this. Brendan and I have been in the Lord long enough that we remember, and some of you will remember, you can say something if you want to agree, but you remember when we used to do church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, amen. Remember when we used to be in ties and, and jackets and suits and Praise God, we got rid of the ties. We've been freed from the law of the tie. I'm just still rejoicing over that. But I remember one night, I can't remember if it was a Wednesday night or a Sunday night. Brenda and I were sitting at the church we were attending at the time. We were sitting there, and I turned around was chatting with the elderly lady behind me. And she, you know, I think she might have been in her early 80s at the time, or at least her late 70s, and this was a number of years ago. And, and as we were talking just before worship started, she said something to me. She said, Jim... I just want you to know you're such a godly man. And before she could finish the sentence, in my mind, I was thinking, praise God. Somebody's actually seeing the work of the Lord in my life. They're picking up on the fact that the root of fruit of the Spirit is displaying the work of Christ in me. This is what I want to hear. And she finished the sentence. She said, you always wear a long sleeve white dress shirt. Okay. Some of you don't have a clue what that means. A number of years ago, in her generation, sanctification was what you wore. It's how you dressed. Whether you had your ears pierced or whether you wore dresses or if women wore slacks and there were a number of rules and a number of lists that you had to keep and it was oppressive and a number of people tried to live under it. And for her, the fact that I wore a long sleeve white dress shirt meant Jim's sanctified. Well, the, I didn't tell her because I knew better, but I understood where she was coming from. Long sleeve white dress shirt was all I owned. <laughs> she must have thought some while later when I got that first long sleeve blue dress shirt, she must have thought Jim's slipping. I need to pray for him because I don't, you know, he's losing it. But sanctification isn't something I work out. Now, as I'm conformed into his image, it's going to be displayed. And it's going to show on the outside, but it's not a rule, list of rules or a no way of dress or the things I put on, it's what's happening inside. And I'll tell you today, at least for me, the greatest, greatest compliment anybody could ever pay me is if they said to me, I see Jesus working in your life. Or even better if they said, you know, I think I want to know this Jesus you're talking about. Because it's not a work I can perform. He set me free. He's doing the work in me. And he's doing it for his purpose. He broke the power of sin over my life and over yours if you're as his. And he set us free from the curse so we don't have to sin anymore. We can say no. 
Look, my desires have changed after I came to him, and I hope you can say the same. My desires have changed, and what I want is I want to be like him. I want to know him, and I can't do that and be immersed into the wisdom of the world. I have to be immersed in him. This, this last word, redemption, it's a release affected by payment of ransom it literally means the buying back from repurchasing, winning back what was previously forfeited or lost. We were lost. You were born lost. You weren't his and you sinned and fell away. You were born lost because Adam sinned, all men sinned. We were born in that condition, but he bought us. He paid for us. And I highlighted the rest of this because I love what this says. It emphasizes the distance that results between the rescued person and what previously enslaved them. Do you get that? You came to Christ and he separated you from what you were a slave of before. Don't be immersed in it again because he separated it. And this word redemption talks about the great separation that's between that. You're not teetering on the edge about to fall back in or where you came from. You're a new creature in Christ if he lives in you. And he did that work. He provided the redemption. Those that are being destroyed, following the wisdom of this world, to them the wisdom of God is foolishness. To them it's, why should I care that 2,000 years ago somebody died on a cross and you say he was raised from the dead? Why should I care? What impact did that have on my life? If you're not in the faith, it has none because you, you've, you've cast it aside and you looked at it as foolishness and you discarded it like the Athenians and you said, don't want to hear anymore. But if you've been moved by faith, if you've, the Spirit of God has quickened you and internally you've said, I want that, I believe that, that faith rises up in you, you're now saved by the cross and you recognize it's the power of God because he's bringing the humble that respond in faith to himself. And he's the one that's completed the work. Look, Isaiah 28, 16, last scripture I'm going to share with you. In Isaiah 28, verse 16, he, he makes a reference to a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Jesus is that precious cornerstone. 1 Corinthians 1, 23, Paul is making it absolutely clear that he's the stone of offense for those who treat the cross as folly. But in Matthew 7, verse 24 through 27, it talks about a foundation, a sure foundation that you can build your entire life on. And no matter when the rains come and the floods come, and they will, the storms of life happen to those that are saved as well as those that are unsaved. But I'm building my life, you're building your life if you're his, on a foundation that cannot be shaken and will not collapse in the midst of the greatest struggles you face in this life. The question this morning is, do you know him? And if you know him, that's the question you present to those you do life with as we go out here and try to change our world. Do you know him? And if you know him, are you asking others, do you know him? That was the centerpiece of Paul's ministry, is to share this gospel message and challenge people to be changed by it and be renewed by it. We're, we're going to close in prayer. And then the prayer, prayer and response team will be in the back. If you have any need for prayer, if you don't know him, you want to know him. We'd love to, to share Christ with you and pray you, uh, pray with you about this as you step into that new role. If, if, if you have other needs, we'll be glad to pray with you about that as well because people are struggling with multiple different things. And uh, we're just open to, to join with you in faith 
and pray with you about that. Let's just close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise your name. We worship you and honor you. We are so thankful for the Word of God. We are so thankful that you brought us here today to lift up Jesus the Christ. We're so thankful for the Spirit of God that's working in us and through us, both here today and out tomorrow, throughout this week, as we live our lives with our families, our friends, our co-workers, and the people that we encounter upon the street. Lord, challenge us. Fill us with your Spirit. Bring someone to faith in Christ today in this place, online, listening to this message. Encourage those that are weak. Strengthen those, Lord, who need it. Uh, Guide us and lead us and show us opportunities throughout this week that we can minister to the people around us and share the faith that we ourselves are walking in. In Jesus' name, help us, Lord, to change our world. Amen.